I'm Sandra Unger. If you don't know me, I used to be, I was um, community pastor number one back starting 1997. They let me stay a few years. I moved away, and now we're on community pastor number three, Scott Boren, but they still let me come and visit once in a while. And so now I live on the east side of St. Paul, and I have a little neighborhood church and nonprofit that works with youth over there, and I'm so glad to be with you this morning. Let's go before God and jump into the Word. God, thank you for being here today. We thank you for the beautiful weather. We thank you for our beautiful family and friends. We thank you that you do meet with us, and not just on Sundays. And I pray that today we would hear from you, that you would meet us just exactly where we are. Some of us are coming in today out of struggles, broken relationships, hardships, hopelessness, and some are coming in victorious. And you know each one of us, our hearts and where we are. And I just pray that we would meet you, that you would meet us in that place, that we would hear from you, and that we would walk out of here with hope, knowing that we're loved, and knowing that you care, and knowing that you will empower us and lead us. And so we commit this time to you, and I pray that all of us, with our baggage, including me, would get out of the way so that we could hear from you. And I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, they told me you're still in Luke, which I'm thinking is going to take us through the 21st century here at Woodland Hills Church. We're in chapter 9, and we'll take a look at verses 43 through 50 today. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. But they did not understand the saying. Its meaning was concealed from them so that they could not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among all of you is the greatest. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. That's Luke 9, 43 through 50. And here's what I want to say about this passage first off, and that is that the disciples are not having a good chapter. That's what's been going on. And a while back when Greg was earlier in Luke 9, you could see even then, this is not going well. There was the transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him. He, he glows. He has Elijah and Moses come to him, and they're talking about what's going to happen to him later in Jer Jerusalem. And the disciples were completely clueless. They wanted to start a housing project and build, build shelters. For, they just had absolutely no idea what was going on. Then they tried to cast a demon out. They got a little too big for their britches, and they couldn't do it. And then in these verses we're looking at today, they show they still have absolutely no idea what the future holds for Jesus. Then they have a junior high argument about who's the greatest. Then they get mad at other people who are successfully casting out demons, I think, because they couldn't do it a little while back. They're not having a good chapter. But I feel really encouraged by that. How about you? These are the disciples. So we have bad chapters, and we can, we can say they had a really bad chapter. It gives us a little bit of hope. When you first look at three, these three stories, you say, well, there's three totally different things going on. And the only thing that really unites them is this sort of less than stellar performance by the disciples, right? Wrong. If you look a little closer, what you find in these, chap these verses is that there's a sort of tragic three-act play about power that's happening. 
In the first act, the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying. He said he was going to be betrayed. They had absolutely no idea. Nine days earlier, he had just told them the exact same thing. They didn't have any idea what he was talking about then. Why are they not getting it? And I think what's going on is the entire Jewish nation was looking for a Messiah that was going to deliver them from their oppression, who's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, restore the temple to its proper leadership. And this is why most people did not accept Jesus as the Messiah, because he, he didn't seem like he was going to overthrow the Roman government. But the disciples did accept him as the Messiah. And I think they had the sort of secret hope that there was going to be a revolution, that he was going to establish an earthly kingdom, and that they would get to sit on thrones and wear fancy hats and be important, right? And so every time Jesus kept saying, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be handed over, they were like, ah, had no idea what was going on. They're still hoping for these thrones and fancy hats, no matter what. Jesus is saying. Act two, these supposedly mature and responsible followers of Jesus Christ are arguing about who's the greatest, like a bunch of junior hires. And I think this argument started when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain for the transfiguration, and the other nine are down below thinking, what is up? We are not in the top three. And so this argument starts developing, right? They're going to get better hats than us, better thrones. We've got a problem. So here they are, junior higher saying, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. In the presence of Jesus, I might add. Jesus maybe overhears a part of it. He knows their hearts. He grabs a little child and says, no, you're not getting it. Here's what's up. It's not about who's important. It's not kind of about what kind of hat or fancy throne you have. In fact, it's the opposite of that in my kingdom. The winners are the ones who sit down in the sandbox with kids, who hang out with people in pain, who seek out relationships with the powerless. Act three of our tragedy. The disciples are mad that someone else is casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they want him to stop them. And if you recall, a few verses earlier, they were unsuccessful. So we're back to that sort of pettiness, like if we can't do it, they can't either. They're feeling a little threatened. They want to hold on to whatever power they can. They want their hats and their thrones and their titles. They want to make sure nobody else gets a little bit of Jesus' power away from them. They want to be the greatest, and they don't want to share it. This is the drama. It goes on all through the Gospels, all through the New Testament, all throughout history, and even today. This is a very long story, and we are living in the middle of this tragic drama about power. Once in a while, though, people step out of this drama, and they start a spin-off. Kind of like when there was Happy Days, and then Laverne and Shirley stepped out and started their own plot. Okay, that's, it's a pushing it a little bit, but you get the point. There's a storyline, and everybody accepts the storyline and the characters, and this is the way it is, and then someone steps out and says, how about this way? Let's introduce some new characters, some new storylines, some new plot. And this spinoff that Jesus started has a very different plot line. He stepped out of the course of history and started a new story. He turned the values of his day upside down. And actually, even though disciples are having a bad chapter right now, they eventually stepped out of the story of history and started a new plot line. But let's talk about someone closer to home, someone in our generation, who in a powerful way stepped out of the plot line and said, I'm going to live according to a different story. We're going to talk this morning a little bit about the story of Henry Nouwen. Some of you may be familiar with his work and writings. He is a Catholic priest. He is extremely well-educated. He died in the year 1996, but he taught at Notre Dame, and then Yale, and then Harvard. 
He was very intelligent. He spoke all over the world. Before he died, he published 38 books, sold millions of copies of those books. When he was 53 years old, Jean Vanier, who was the founder of Large Communities for Mentally Disabled Adults, invited Henry Nouwen to come to the Daybreak community of mentally disabled adults in Toronto, Canada, and become a priest and a caregiver to adults who function at the level of children. And all of these adults that Henry eventually ministered to because he accepted the challenge did not know a thing about Yale or Harvard. They had never read one word out of any of Henry's books. They didn't give a rip that he shook hands with the Pope. They didn't care who invited him to speak. The only thing that these adults cared about was that Henry listened to them and loved them and was home on Saturday nights. In worldly terms, we might say that he left his power behind, right? He left the hallowed halls, the ivory towers of Harvard, and entered into a leadership role with adults who just didn't care about his education or anything that he'd ever done. And some would say, and some have said, that Henry wasted the last 10 years of his life ministering to people who didn't fully appreciate what he had to offer. Think about that. Henry did what Jesus called us to do. He welcomed the least of these in the name of Jesus. But according to the very real standards that we live with every day, all day, he was wasting his time. They say, why would you do this? Why would you give up the money and the prestige and the power and the chance to sit in rooms with very important people to minister day in, day out, month after month, year after year, with people who function at the level of six and seven-year-olds? Why would you do this? And that's the question that the world asks. After Henry had been living at daybreak for about five years, this is what he said. What makes the temptation to power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it's that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love people. The assumption in our society is that the way things are, the way things are set up with a free market economy and with wanting more power and bigger stuff and better jobs is the way it's supposed to be. So we can live in the middle of it and we can maybe find creative ways to be Jesus in the middle of it, but we don't challenge kind of the overall structure because this is the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to seek power. You're supposed to be smarter. You're supposed to be more educated. You're supposed to have friends in high places. And getting your list of important tasks done every day is the most important thing. And what Jesus did in a very big way and what Henry Nouwen did in a smaller way was to challenge that assumption. Jesus actually was not coming just so that we could have life easier and go to heaven when we die. Did you know that? And this might be radical for some of us. Jesus was a radical. And he actually came and challenged every value, every assumption, every belief about who God is and what he's up to. About what we're called to do with our life, about what's important, about what is good. He turned all of it upside down. Now, if you've been at Woodland Hills for a while, this is not news to you. Greg does cartwheels every week, challenging the status quo, right? We've seen the cartwheels. We've heard them. So does that mean that we all have it, right? Are we all living that radical life that Jesus calls us to? Are we setting aside power? Are we willing to minister in obscurity? What are we doing? Do we get it yet? I think what happens is we settle 
maybe. We come in here and we, we hear the cartwheels, we see the cartwheels, and then we kind of fade back into business as usual. We forget to be challenged by Monday, to ask whose values we're living by. I know I do this all the time. I moved away from here and got into a ministry context where everybody kind of had money. They're precious people, but they just had money. They had a lot of, they were pretty much in the status quo, which is kind of a comfortable place to be, I found out. You know, after leaving here, it's like, wow, this is really easy. And then I came back and visited Woodland Hills, and Greg was preaching, and he was doing cartwheels. And what he said, he, he challenged the way we spend our time and money. And in terms of purchasing, he said, here's what we ask in our society today. Maybe some of you remember this. It was about five years ago. He said, before you go buy something, you're going to say, can I afford it? And will it make me happy? And if the answer to those two questions is yes, we're good to go. Now, I would say the actual two questions are, will it fit on my credit card? And will it make me happy for at least a half a minute? And if the answer to those two questions are yes, then we go ahead and buy it. And I remember sitting here going, oh yeah, I forgot, we're supposed to be radical. And so I went to the mall that afternoon. <laughs> See how long it lasts? And I found a pair of red shoes. And I thought, I can afford it. Like even afford it, I didn't even have to put it on the credit card. And I think it'll make me happy for at least a couple of hours. And then this voice of God said, is there any other questions? because that was Greg's point to his sermon. What else could you do with the $29? What does this kind of purchase represent to you? Will it really make you happy? This is what you want to do in the middle of the mall, is have this sort of discourse going on in your head. And so I didn't buy the shoes, and they would have looked really good with this outfit. And I felt so victorious. I walked out of there like, I have conquered the mall! I've conquered consumerism. I did not spend $29. And five years later, I'm still thinking about the red shoes. <laughs> and you know what? I've bought shoes since then. I bought other things since then. Because you forget to be radical. You forget to ask the question. Now, I'm not advocating that we all die in the pair of shoes that we're wearing right now. I'm just pointing out the fact that we remember once in a while what Jesus calls us to. And then most of the time, we forget. And so what I've done is I've hung this modern art right next to my bed where I have to wake up and stare at it all the time. What it says is, of course I want to save the world, she said, but I was hoping to do it from the comfort of my regular life. <laughs> of course I want to save the world, she said, but I was hoping to do it from the comfort of my regular life. Does anyone resonate with that? I want to be radical. I want him to say stuff at my funeral. I want to make a difference. But I also want to do everything that everybody else is doing. I want to be able to spend my time and my money just exactly the way all my neighbors are, but I want to make a huge difference in sacrifice for Jesus. And you can't do both of those. If you want to change the world, you've got to step in with Jesus outside of the plot line and accept a different set of values. And it's so hard to do that because the values that come at us every single day from the television, from the billboard, from everywhere, even a lot of churches, says maintain the status quo and slap a little bit of Jesus on the side. And the Jesus part is optional and the status quo part is not. And this is what happened with the disciples, I think. At times they got it. They did miracles. They forgave each other. They sacrificed. They learned humility. They loved. They even loved their enemies. And then they settled back into normal life. And they went shoe shopping and they got jealous and they argued about who's the greatest, and they dreamed of fancy hats and thrones. 
and they got trapped by the allure of power. And I have observed that power and community, or power and love, have a really, really, really poor relationship, but it's actually quite predictable. Now, I need you to work with me here for just a minute, because this is going to be a challenge. But what I have noticed is that in a relationship, and let's take a marriage relationship as an example, the one who loves the least has the most power. Now, think about this for a minute. If you are the one in a marriage relationship who most wants that relationship to work, who most cares what happens, who most cares what happens to your spouse, who has the most to lose if that relationship doesn't work, you don't tend to be the one with the power in the relationship. You're the one who's trying to change, who's bending over backwards, who's compromising, who's going the extra mile. But if you're the one in the relationship with the least to lose, who feels like you have other options, you don't feel the need to change, and you maintain the power. For those of you who aren't married, or who that hits too close to home with, let's use another more objective example. Let's talk about credit cards. If you get on the phone to ask Visa a favor, how's that going to go? <laughs> Have you ever seen the like, micro font on the back of your statement that tells all the rules? And then you have some little problem, you know, like you forgot to make a payment, or you charged more than you're supposed to, or you need more money, <laughs> and you call them on the phone. Who has all the power? How powerful do you feel? They might be nice to you. They might waive that $800 charge for charging $5 more than your credit limit, maybe, if they're feeling good that day but they might not, they probably won't, and you got nothing to do with it. You are not the one with the power. They don't have to change their rules, their procedures, they're not bending over backwards. You're the one who has to change. You have no power. And that's kind of the example of the marriage relationship. When you get power as defining a relationship, whether it's a friendship, a work relationship, a marriage, the one who loves the least has the most power. The one who loves the most, who has the most to lose if the relationship doesn't work, has the least power. And we always want to be the one in relationship who has the most power, who has the least to lose. We want to be Visa. We want that power balance maintained in our favor. And I believe that power is so often a destroyer of community. Why do we always want to know who's in charge, who gets to make the decision, who's the best, fastest, brightest? I grew up in suburban neighborhoods almost my whole life. What's the first question at a neighborhood gathering that everybody asks in a suburban neighborhood? Anybody know? What do you do for a living? What's going on? Do you really care what that person does for a living just for the sake of knowing? No, you're building a chart in your head the entire time. Okay, look, he's a bank president. I'm not going to talk to that person because I feel intimidated. All right, what do you do? Okay, she stays home with her kids, so I think I can handle this conversation. What's he do? Okay, he seems like he makes more money. He has a corner office. Okay, what about these people? All right, he's up here. She's down here. All right, I think I'm sliding in right here. Oh, there's somebody else who's below me. Okay, moving up to notch. Okay, that person lost their job. This is what we're doing the whole time. It is just ridiculous. We're defining ourselves according to the status quo that Jesus came to challenge. And the church does it. Everybody does it. Retirees. What's the question? What do your kids do? 
You got to have like nine kids in case the rest of them don't make it. One of them will do something that you can brag about. <laughs> yeah, my son's over in New Mexico, started a blah, blah, blah. You got a lot of ranking going on because everybody's got all these kids, grandkids, you know, all of a sudden the, the whole chart becomes enormous. My parents go down to an old, older age community in Florida and look out. <laughs> Students, what grade you get? What college you going to? How about pastors? How many members do you have in your church? Do you know when you get pastors together, you can't actually say that? And I've actually observed that this con there's a weird conversation going and the whole question in the room is, who's got the most people at their church? But you can't actually say it and so you're going around trying to figure out where's the building. Have you seen that building? Have you been in their church? Really, how big is the auditorium? I heard they have a new auditorium. How many people is that seat? This is the question. Who cares? Why is this a question that we're asking? I remember looking at a brochure about a church I was going to a class at and it said it was the largest blah, blah, blah church in Minnesota and it had 3,000 members. So I'm driving over to this church and I pull up and I'm like, where's the other buildings? 3,000 members. And so then I walk in and there's like 212 seats in the auditorium. Like what do they have, 16 services every weekend? <laughs> They've got like every person that's ever stepped foot in the door, even the dead ones are still on the membership roll. Why are we having this conversation? It's utterly irrelevant. It's always, where do you live? What do you do? What's your zip code? You know what we're doing in these conversations? What are we doing? We're arguing about who is the greatest. We're having a bad chapter. We're just a little bit more sophisticated about it. We don't just sit, sit down and say, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. But really, that's what we're doing. There's really not a lot of difference. We just use a little bit better vocabulary and we're a little bit more subtle. And when we have these conversations, we breathe a sigh of relief when we find out that we're the winner. We're the one in the room with the best house and the best job and the best education. Turns out we are the best and the brightest and the fastest. And if we're the loser, then we resolve to work harder. We gotta take a step up. We gotta be somebody's boss, leader, hero, landlord, superior. At least we gotta be smarter or better looking. Or have better children. Or better furniture. Or a better car. Or a nicer driveway. Whatever. We wanna be ranked number one. We wanna be best. Do you know that they are now ranking junior high basketball players? What is that about? Remember when you used to go outside in the lawn or the alley and pick up a ball and a stick and just start whacking stuff around? And then when you were about 14, you thought, oh, maybe I'll get into JV or an organized sport. Now we have like two-year-olds in these development clinics. We have six-year-olds on traveling teams. And if you want to have one of these conversations, talk to these traveling team parents. It's absolutely terrifying. I, competition and power have started to define sports when kids are six years old instead of relationships, which is what it used to be in the front and back lawn. I'm not condemning traveling teams. I don't need phone calls about that. What I'm saying is that, I was just getting a little worried, if you could feel that with me. There's been a movement from relationship to competition and power at such a young age. It's everywhere. Take a look at this video that really illustrates the problem. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it and I see it all the time. Obviously people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! You, 
show me. You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition? People get something out of that. That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can beat anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. Let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business all. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check on. You know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich. And I get this Swiss account that I want to check out. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways in Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know, you know the Pacific Rim Company. We're going to try to take that over. And global enterprise. I walked on the moon. I think he nailed it. You been at a party with that guy before? The me monster? It's very familiar, unfortunately. Here's what we're trying to do. Number one, we're trying to be in relationships where we have the least to lose. We're trying to be Visa all the time. And what we'll intentionally do is define our community by the people that we feel like we have power over. And so we'll actually leave this community over here for that starts to feel threatened. If we don't feel like we can be in charge, we can be Visa, then we're going to go over here into this community where we can have a little bit of power. And the second thing we're doing is we're trying to be the winner in our relationships in everything that can be measured. Looks, money, success, school, titles, houses, you name it. And when we do these things, we feel safe and we feel in control. So we keep having these conversations day after day after day to constantly size up how we're doing, to rearrange things, to mix things up, to make sure that we stay in control. And here's one huge, huge problem with this. Other than the obvious ones about finding our identity in Christ, challenging the status quo, being sacrificial servants to our community. Other than those really obvious biblical problems, there's another one that you might not have thought of, and it's this. This entire conversation leaves out the people that Jesus cared most about. In Luke 4, Jesus said he had come to bring good news to the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. What do you think the poor and the prisoner and the blind and the oppressed would have to say in this conversation? What do you think the people that Henry Nouwen spent his last 10 years ministering with and to would have to say in this conversation? These conversations about jobs, houses, cars, and stuff are utterly irrelevant to the poor, the prisoner, the blind and the oppressed, which should tell us something. I don't want to be part of a conversation that excludes the people who Jesus cared most about. Thinking globally, half of the people in the world today live on less than $2 per day. According to UNICEF, 30,000 children die each day due to poverty, and they, quote, die quietly in some of the poorest villages on earth, far removed from the scrutiny and the conscience of the world. Being meek and weak in life makes these dying multitudes even more invisible in death. 
210,000 children each week, just under 11 million children each year under the age of five dying of poverty globally. Closer to home, at the elementary school down the street from me, 78% of the children on free or reduced price lunch, which means that they fall far below the poverty line. What does this conversation mean to them about houses and cars, jobs and titles? It means nothing. It means nothing. They're sidelined and they're voiceless in this conversation that so many of us seem to think is so important, even in the church. In the neighborhoods that I've lived in, it is believed to have been of critical importance whether your clothes came from Kmart or Macy's, how old your car is, which zip code you live in, whether you have an office or a cubicle. These are utterly and completely important and utterly and completely irrelevant to the poor and the blind and the oppressed and those in prison and those who are weak and those who are mentally disabled adults and those who are suffering and struggling and poor and broken. Utterly irrelevant. Jesus is not in this conversation. These are not the things he measures, period. And we have all been brainwashed into the status quo and we need to step outside and say, if I'm going to change the world, I'm not going to be able to do it from the comfort of my regular life. It will not happen. Some of you know that my family moved into the east side of St. Paul, sort of this little neighborhood church and nonprofit, a few miles from here. And when we moved here four years ago, I wanted to do big things for God. I wanted to change things. I wanted to make something. I, not for just selfish reasons. I really wanted to make a difference for Jesus. I just didn't know what that meant. So I hooked up with the denomination. I started a church. We had a strategic plan. We had goals, neither of which are evil in and of themselves. But what happened to me, coming from the suburbs and moving into a very different social context, is I started meeting people and kind of realizing that I, I was clueless about a lot of things. And so I wanted to get to know people. And that takes time, Right? And there started to be this tension between the expectations of the church and what I felt like Jesus was calling me to do. And what the work in the church said was find more people to come to the church service. Raise some funds for the church service. Plan a good church service. Write a fancy sermon for the church service. All of which take time. And what my heart and what I think Jesus was saying was really get to know people. Love your neighbors. Be present with them. And I almost had a nervous breakdown. If you knew me during this time, you didn't want to know me during this time. It was just constant tension, and Jesus would not let me go. And so in the middle of this completely insane, crazed and confused time, my sister sent me something in the mail. My sister's here today, and uh, her brother-in-law, or her, my brother-in-law, her husband, stuck something in the package, a little card. And I don't know why he did it. I've never asked him, but he sent me this little card, and I pulled it out, and this is a quote by Henry Nowen, whose story I just shared with you. And I'm going to read this card to you, it's a little bit longer, so stay with me. It's really important. Henry Nouwen said, More and more, the desire grows in me simply to walk around, to greet people, to enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It is a privilege to have the time to practice the simple ministry of presence. Still, it is not as simple as it seems. My own desire to be useful, to do something significant, or to be part of some impressive project is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings, conferences, study groups, and workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It is difficult not to have plans, not to organize people around an urgent cause, and not to feel that you are working directly for social progress. But I wonder more and more, Henry says, if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, 
to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and tell your own, and to let them know with words, with handshakes and hugs that you do not simply like them, but you truly love them. And I read that page and I wept. And I feel like that page both ruined me and saved me because every bit of training and education I had said that I needed to get stuff done, build something, do big things for God, solve problems, save the neighborhood, prove I was sharp, have a title at least for crying out loud. And every bit of Jesus said that I needed to hang out to run errands with my new friends, go grocery shopping, go to the doctor with my friends, hang out on the porch, cook out, know my neighbors, listen and love. And so for these last two years, I'm trying to choose the latter. I'm trying to choose to love and to be present. But I'm walking upstream in a society and in a church that has largely embraced the status quo, which says that we move with everyone else, we do what everyone else does, and we slap a little Jesus on the side. And some of you I know are sitting there right now and saying, hey, Sandra, that's really cute and all. It's very sweet what you're doing. But that's not how the world really works. And you're just being ridiculously idealistic. And what I want to say to you today is that I'm an educated and intelligent person, and I know that's not how the world works. And I know how the world works. But God did not call us to fit in with the current system and economy. Jesus did not come to explain how the world works and teach us to fit in with it, right? He called us to challenge in any and every way, everything that happens, every value that's held, every billboard, every magazine, and every sermon that does not fit in with a sacrificial, loving message of Jesus Christ, every single one. Challenge it. I know that's not how the world works. I get it. Second, yes, I am an idealist. And Jesus was too. He called people who were teenagers, women, prostitutes, people who were viewed as failures in their society, people who were not particularly educated, people who had been rejected, people who had no role in the social strata, and he really believed they could change the world. Jesus was an idealist. Jesus knew how the world worked. Jesus was extremely aware of how the world worked, and that's why he came, and that's what he challenged, and that's what we're called to do. I know how the world works. Henry Nouwen was extremely educated. He knows how the world works. And in his last 10 years of life, when he stepped outside the power structure, Jesus transformed him in ways that he almost cannot communicate. The application of this is not simple in, every, in any way. There's no easy, go do these two things, because it gets to the heart of everything that our society says is important and everything that we maybe have bought into life being about. And if you're like me, you're sitting out there and you're feeling kind of uncomfortable maybe and thinking, let's go to Brugger's afterwards. Because <laughs> maybe that will make this feeling go away. And this is the part in the sermon where I'm supposed to say, but you know, it's not for everybody. I'm supposed to pull it back a little bit so that you can go and say, let's pick something up on the way home and feel good. That's my job, right? I'm supposed to pull it back a little bit and make everybody comfortable. But you know what? 
I was looking at Jesus' sermons, and when Jesus preached, people had one of three responses. They either were mad at him, or they utterly changed their lives, or they put their fingers in their ears. And I'm going to leave you with those three options. You can do any of those three things, but I'm not going to make it easy. I'm not going to pull it back. I want to leave you with a couple of things, though. First of all, are you Visa? Because Jesus was kind of like gold American Express. And he kind of set all that aside. And he entered into relationships that were purely defined by love. Not power, not position, not authority. He entered in and he loved and he sacrificed, he served, and he gave his all. So if he can set aside gold card American Express, can we set aside Visa together? Could we do that? Our job is to invest in relationships that do not involve power. Power is not one of the things that we have to bring into the door before us, or at least not a worldly power. And Greg has done very much to define what it means to be power under versus power over. We may be someone's boss, but does that have to define our relationship? We may be someone's landlord, but does that have to define the relationship? God wants us to enter into those relationships, but define them by different criteria. Remember, step out of happy days, and join Laverne and Shirley. Realize that you can't save the world from the comfort of your regular life. Change the plot line. Whatever metaphor works for you. The point is to love people. Now here's the deal. Sometimes we say, love people so. What do we say? Love people so they'll find Jesus. Love people so they'll stop this sin. Love people so they'll stop that sin. No, the message of Jesus, and hear me here, is love people. People are not projects. We love people because Jesus loves us. He gives us the power to love people wherever they are, wherever they've been, wherever they're going, and whatever they've done. That's what we offer, period. But here's the absolute genius, absolute genius of our gold card God, is that when we follow in obedience and we love people where they are, who they are, whatever they've done, and wherever they're going, it bears fruit absolutely beyond what anything we could comprehend. It bears something eternal. Loving relationships are absolutely foundational for every single important thing that will ever happen in the, life, in the mind of Jesus, in the heart of Jesus, in the kingdom of God. If you just watched Jesus during his three-year ministry, you might not have predicted the movement would catch on. You might have thought, oh, what an odd little group of people he's selected to surround himself with. And it's not going very well. And there's really no people with fancy hats or thrones as part of this movement. He pretty much just hung out with a handful of people all day, every day for three years. He wasn't very strategic, or at all strategic by today's standards. He wasn't very productive. There wasn't much he could point to at the end and say, look what I did. There was just a lot of very organic, loving relationships, things taking hold. But it changed the world because it was built on this foundation that's absolutely critical, which is love. Jesus set aside all of his power and he entered fully into this world of his friends and he invites us to do the same. And my challenge to you today is that in the same way that Jesus set aside his gold card, we're going to stop trying to be Visa starting now. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would keep us uncomfortable, keep me uncomfortable, continue to challenge and we need so much to have a fresh perspective because we're inundated, surrounded, um, just overwhelmed by this message that power is important, 
that our identity is formed by this, that, and the other thing. And so we need to constantly hear from you, to go to you and say, no, how am I defined? I'm defined by you. I'm defined by love. My calling is to love. And so help us to step outside of the society, even as we live in it, and to give it a loving critique and a challenge and to choose a different way and to model a different way. And we know that we can only do that through the power of your spirit, not by us just trying harder. And so I pray that you would help us to receive your love and that love would flow through us and that through that we would be empowered to be change agents in this world that so much needs a change. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sandra.